um, as we fly through the book of Acts at a pace that I am regretting, uh, but because I am stubborn, we will finish the book of Acts this year as the Lord wills. Um, last week we looked at Acts chapter 13, and Acts chapter 13 was the first of Paul, what we know as Paul's three missionary journeys. Paul and Barnabas, and for a time, John Mark, went on a uh, missionary journey. And uh, this week is the, is the second part. I wanted to bust out a map and uh, so we can, we can see what's going on here. We've got Jerusalem here in Israel. And the church, Acts chapter 13 starts with the base of the church shifting from Jerusalem to Antioch for the purpose of mission to the Gentile world. They go from Antioch to the island of Cyprus. This is the Mediterranean Sea. Antioch is in modern-day Syria. Paul is grabbed in Tarsus, which is over here, taken to Antioch. They stay there for a year. And the church in Antioch then sends those Paul and Barnabas out, to, and they go to Cyprus, which is Barnabas' homeland. They have a remarkable uh, evangelism encounter in Paphos on, on the island of Cyprus, Cyprus, where the governor of the island becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. As we know, he is the only convert on that part of the trip. They then head, sail over to, to Perga and go up to Pisidian Antioch. Yes, another Antioch, which is in modern-day Turkey. And they get kicked out of the city in Pisidian Antioch. Uh, they speak at the synagogue. Lots of people want to hear uh, the word that Paul is preaching. Uh, but they get uh, run out of town. And uh, then, so Acts chapter 14 begins in Iconium. It then goes to a town called Lystra and then Derby over there. And then they retrace the route back to Antioch at the end of chapter 14. So we've got Israel, Syria, Cyprus, Turkey over here. Greece is just Greece, Italy over there. That's what's happening. That's where we are in the world. You can look all of these places up uh, today. And so chapter 14 is really a tale of three different cities. And this region is in the Roman province of Galatia. So if you look in your Bibles uh, and you see the, the uh, letter to the churches in Galatia, this is what's being talked about. This is the province of Galatia up there in, uh, in chapter 13 and 14, Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. And this text is going to tell us some things about the greatness of the gospel. It's going to tell us some things about the nature and goal of true mission. And it is also going to offer us a, a convicting rebuke to comfortable Christianity. Let's read God's Word, and we'll read uh, the whole chapter, a lot shorter this time than last week. Acts chapter 14, uh, verse 1. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. I want to stop right there. How cool is that? That is a great verse. Jews and Greeks both believed the gospel. 
But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews, with their rulers, to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to their surrounding country, and where they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voice, saying in Lycanion, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Persia, they went down to Atalia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, and where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. This is God's word. Paul and Barnabas wind up in Iconium after getting run out of the town in Pisidian Antioch in Turkey. They shake the dust off their feet at the end of chapter 13 in judgment against the Jews who reject the message of the gospel. And as often is the case, Paul 
manages to go into the synagogue. He is uniquely able to get a place, a platform to speak from because he is a, he, a Jew and he was trained under the famous Jewish rabbi Gamaliel. So there's almost always an opportunity for Paul to speak in a synagogue. And it says, that wonderful verse in, in, in verse 1, it says, They spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. He shared the good news of Jesus Christ. They shared it repeatedly. And it tells us that they spoke boldly. What did they speak? What was this message? Luke, the author of the book of Acts, tells us that he spoke in verse 3, The word of His grace. It's a wonderful summary for what the gospel is. Paul preached grace in the synagogue to the Jews. He preached grace to the Gentiles. We don't know how that happened, whether they came into the synagogue themselves or whether it was outside. But the gospel of Paul and the gospel of Peter and the gospel of Jesus Christ is always, first and foremost, at its very heart, an idea of grace, that we don't earn our salvation, that we don't make ourselves righteous before God, that we don't merit it in any way, our salvation. We're not saved because of who we are, what we look like, who our father was, who our mother was, who we voted for, whatever it is, whatever it is. The privileges that we have as Christians are bestowed upon us by God. The gospel is a message of the unmerited favor of God. It is a free, it is a gift that God gives to sinners. Evangelism, a wise man once said, is simply a beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. God gives that bread in His Son, Jesus Christ, the bread of life. Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, he says, By grace we are saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. If it is something that we have done, we have room to boast before God, but we have none. For Paul and Barnabas were there boldly, and it said that they spoke there for a long time. We're talking weeks, we're talking months. This wasn't a fly-by-night tour. They kept preaching the gospel. Luke also tells us that signs and wonders accompanied the preaching. God authenticated the preached word with miracles. And we see one later in the text. Miracles existed, supernatural works existed with the word to show that God was true and God was behind this. God was giving grace. And where did this success come from? Obviously it, it comes through the message of the gospel. The disciples were made because the gospel is a powerful message. But there's something we didn't touch on at the end of Acts 13 and it's in verse 48. It says that as many believed as were appointed to eternal life. Acts 13 48. Maybe your Bible translation says they were destined the word means God ordained some to believe. Mission succeeds ultimately because God has chosen to save many. God has chosen a people for himself. God gives a savior, Jesus Christ. God gives faith. God picks a people. 
And the wonder is not that why do some perish? The wonder is that God saves any at all. It was this belief that God had appointed a people for himself that compelled William Carey in the 1700s to go to India upon a boat and go to India with the gospel because he believed that God had chosen a people for himself but he also believed in human responsibility that the message of the gospel must be preached and people must believe it and therefore be brought into Christ's church. Far from stopping mission, it actually encourages mission because you say God has gone out ahead. God, before the foundation of the world, has chosen a people for himself. This text tells us that the preaching of the gospel brings conversion. It brings faith. It brings encouragement. But it also brings division. It says here that the Jews and the Gentiles and the city leaders, i.e. everybody in the city of Iconium, hatched a plan to stone Paul and Barnabas. Stone them. Pick up rocks and kill them. This is just as Jesus foretold in Matthew chapter 10. He said to his disciples, He says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And how is this for a little command? When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes again. Paul and Barnabas find out that there is a plan underfoot to have them killed, to stone them. And they listen to the words of Jesus, and they flee to the next town. That's what they do. They flee southeast about 150 kilometers to a quiet little backwater city called Lystra. And this is one of those things that we very easily just gloss over. But this is a pagan city. This is a city that worshipped a pagan pantheon of gods. We're told that the patron god of the city of Lystra was Zeus. And there was a temple to the Greek god Zeus at the entrance to this city. And there's no easy point of contact here for Paul and, and Barnabas. Many commentators make note of the fact that this is probably like going into a near illiterate town. They have no Bible. And this contrasts so strongly with Acts 13 where Paul goes into a synagogue and we see something different here. Paul never, ever, and I, I want to make this clear, he never, ever changes the message of the gospel as being about Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. But the points of contact are different from time to time. These people don't know about Abraham. They don't know about David. They don't know about Moses or the prophets. He doesn't start talking to them here with Psalm 2 or Psalm 16 or Isaiah. His point of contact with preaching is God as creator, and we'll see that soon. 
But what Paul does is that he starts with a miracle before preaching. It says that there was a man crippled from birth. Paul looks at him and tells him to stand up. If you know your Bible well, you know the story of Acts, or you've been here over the past few weeks, you might read the story of Paul healing this crippled man and think that it sounds familiar. Because it is. It is almost identical to the story of Peter healing the man in front of the temple in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 3. Almost identical. Same phrases. Why is Luke telling us this? Why is Luke making this point? Why is Luke telling us this story? Surely many other things happened. Why tell us about the crippled man there in Lystra? The reason is he's doing something very, very important. Remember what stood here at the city, at the entrance to the city of Lystra? A temple to Zeus, the Greek god. And just as Peter had stood outside the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and declared the power of Jesus to restore and heal after he healed a crippled man in Jerusalem out, out the front of the temple, Paul is doing the exact same thing in front of a pagan temple. And Luke is saying, do you get it? Do you see this? The gospel isn't just powerful in Jerusalem. It's not just powerful in the context of the Jews. It's also powerful. The same gospel has power in front of a pagan temple with pagan Gentile people. The gospel has power everywhere. Peter got an initial positive reaction from the crowd after his miracle in Acts 3. And then the Sanhedrin swooped in and arrested him and pulled him before a court. But Paul, maybe as we read through Acts 14, you were surprised. What is going on here? This is, wow. The people start yelling in the local dialect of Lyconian, saying that the Gods have come down. That Paul is Zeus and Barnabas is Hermes, Greek gods. The Romans believed that Jupiter and Zeus were the same thing, the same god, and they believed that Mercury was, was Hermes, same thing. So you've got Jupiter and Mercury, or Zeus and Hermes. Where on earth does this come from? Where on earth does this come from? Lystra has a famous story written about it. A local legend from maybe 50 years prior to this. And depending on where you went to school or whether you're interested in poetry and, and classics or not, perhaps you read Ovid's Metamorphosis. Anyone heard of Ovid? Like three people. That's cool. My wife read it uh, at school. Americans getting some culture. That's good, right? Um, sorry. <laughs> so, Ovid's Metamorphosis, you can read it today, is a story, it is a legend about the Greek pantheon of gods, which is based in the city of Lystra. And two gods, Jupiter and Mercury, or Zeus and Hermes, they come down in the form of mortal men, and they travel around this region of Lystra, and they go from home to home, 
trying to find a place to stay. They go to a thousand homes and no one will let them in. Eventually they come to the home of an elderly couple and the couple lets them in and welcomes them and feeds them. And so Zeus and Hermes, they change this home into a giant temple and then they flood the rest of the region. They wipe out the rest of the town of Lystra because all these other homes did not let them in. The gods are angry and must be appeased. And this couple are made servants in the service of this temple, and they ask for one request that they might die at the same time together so that they never have to look on each other's grave. And they granted that request. That's the story. That's what's going on here. That's what the people are thinking of. This is a local legend, and they believe it. It's one we can read about still today. And so when Paul heals the crippled man in front of the temple to Zeus, this story is what they think of. Oh, wow, Zeus is here. This is written about 50 years prior. And obviously they want to appease the God because they remember last time this happened, our city got wiped out. So we need to be very careful this time. So they start worshipping Paul and Barnabas. This is why they do it. They start worshipping Paul and Barnabas. They bust out oxen. They bust out flowers and garlands and ribbons. And they prepare to offer sacrifices to what they think is Zeus and Hermes. The people do their absolute best to make the gods happy. And the whole time they're speaking the local language, which Paul and Barnabas don't understand. And eventually, they cotton on to what's going on here. And you imagine they're standing there, they can't know what's, they don't know what's happening, and they see these oxen comes out, and the, the bull's got ribbons on his hair, people got flowers and knives, and they just don't know what's going on. And eventually, they work out what's happening. And they said they tear their clothes, Luke says, and run into the crowd and say, stop, 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 no, no, we're men. Just like you, you can imagine them just motioning, speaking uh, pagan sign language, universal, uh, universal language, stop, 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 don't do that. And somehow Paul is able to speak to them. It says, you've been worshipping vain idols, you've been worshipping created things. You create yourself a god in legend. And then you worship him. How does that help you? We're not told all that Paul said to the people of Lystra, but we are told that there came to be disciples there, so he absolutely would have gotten to the gospel message. Verses 15, 16, 17 give something of his message, but it is a point of contact that he made with them. Not with Abraham and Isaac, but he points to the same point of contact that every human being has, that there is a creator God, that God created the world, God created the earth. He says, God made the heavens and the earth and the sea. And he says, God did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That God, that is our God, the true God. He's saying to these people, the good news is better than you think. 
the reality of God is better than what you think. It's way better than Zeus and Hermes. Way, way better. God gives us good things. Have you thought of that? Have you been reminded of that before? That God is for your joy? It says God gives things to satisfy you. God is for your good. We must never forget that as Christians. We have this constant war in our culture against God and against the the idea that God is a good God. We believe that God just restricts our freedoms. But the reality is the Creator knows what's best for the creation. When God says no, it is for our good. When God says no to murder and adultery and lying, it is for our good. And positively, God gives things. Everyone here has felt rested. Everyone here has felt satisfied at some point of their life. Everyone here has eaten a good meal or drank a, a, a good drink and enjoyed it. God thought that up. Friendship, love, sex, all those things. God made those. He's good. Let's consider now the the stories that these people in Lystra believed and the difference between that and the true gospel. The good news is not that the gods have come down in likeness of men, sort of like a demigod, but God actually became a man. He actually became a man. Jesus Christ didn't just have a shell over a God body. He actually became a man. He lived like us. He was tempted in all ways. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 tells us that he had to be made like us to save us. Mary and Joseph could not find lodging in Bethlehem for Jesus. Many people from the moment Jesus was born rejected him. They rejected him so much that they killed him on a cross. But did Jesus then, like Zeus and Hermes, come in and destroy Bethlehem, destroy Jerusalem? No. Unlike Zeus and Hermes in the story, Jesus is real. That's the first one. But Jesus died to save those who rejected him. He came not to punish us, but to take our sins and punishment upon himself and give his life as a ransom for many. He doesn't call for us to to work and to, to pretend to love him in order to appease his wrath. Jesus himself is the perfect sacrifice on behalf of sinners. This is a transforming message of this gospel message. It is a message of grace. It is a message of divine accomplishment. It's not a message of try harder, do better. Whoops, you messed up, flood you and kill your town. But it's a message of you have sinned. You have gone down your own way. But God supplies the grace that you need. The gospel is good news. But even with this explanation, it is still barely enough to stop the crowd from offering sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. Barely enough. Crowds are are fickle. Jews from Antioch and Iconium come down and persuade the crowd to stone Paul. 
the crowd that minutes earlier, perhaps hours earlier, perhaps days earlier, we don't know, the crowd that wanted to worship him, the same crowd stoned Paul. Paul could have won the entire town over if he just compromised a little bit. If Paul had been willing to let the people worship him, just like Herod, Herod did back in Acts chapter 12. Remember that story, the guy who dies from worms? If he just compromised a little bit and not rebuke their worship, he could have won the entire town over. But he did not. Paul refused to compromise. He might say things to us today, such as, Crowds crucified Jesus. Why should we expect everyone to like us? They crucified our Lord. Paul is stoned inside the city in Lystra. Anytime you notice a stoning in scripture, they usually, and back in those days, they would usually take you outside of the city. They stone him right then and there. The memory was right in front of them. They kill him. There's a mad rage. And when they think that Paul is dead, they then drag him outside of the city. No burial, no grave. They just drag him and leave him to be eaten by animals. The believers then, the believers in the region, it says there are believers near Lystra. They go and find Paul and they think he's dead. And as they gathered around him, perhaps praying, perhaps crying, Paul wakes up and walks back into the city of Lystra, perhaps under the, the cover of darkness. And the next day, walks, begins a journey of 100 kilometers down to Derby. How this happened, I don't know. Was he miraculously healed? Was he just tough as nails? Was he carried? We don't know. And they go down to Derby, and they said they stayed a while, and they said they made many disciples there. He kept going. And this is the crazy thing. Uh, Paul tells us, uh, Luke tells us in verse 21, He then returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. He goes right back to all the places where the people who tried to kill him came from. He returned to the scene of the crime. There was a different goal this time. He went to evangelize on the way there, but on the way back, it said his goal was not ultimately evangelism, but in building up the church, edifying it, and encouraging it, encouraging those that were already believers. And in verse 23, do we see what it says? It says, He then appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, and he committed them to the Lord. One of the ways in which Paul would have been able to appoint elders so quickly, this whole missionary journey takes only a couple of years, is because Christianity is built upon the Old Testament foundation. It is built upon Judaism. It is the fulfillment of Judaism. That Jesus is the promised Messiah, the greater David. And so the reason why he's able to probably appoint elders is because he's got people that understand the Old Testament scriptures. And along with that, 
perhaps also, though, they didn't wait for someone to be a Christian for 10, 15, 20 years before they made them elders. There's something to that. There's a sense in which they find men that have a good understood grasp of the faith, that they are qualified in character, and then they appoint them into the office of elder to oversee the church, and they trust the church to the Lord. This is amazing to me. This is amazing that he plants churches at the rate that he does. From there it says Paul returns to Antioch in Syria, the the sending church, and he reports back to the gathered church. He gathers all the people and says, you sent us out from Antioch, here's what happened. He gives them probably the craziest mission, uh, the mission report back of all time. I want to suggest two points of application for us, two points that we can take home. Firstly, we need to see something about Paul's missionary strategy here. We need to learn something from this. We need to be reminded of it. We need to be reminded of this biblical truth. Roland Allen was an Anglican missionary to China at the turn of the 20th century. And he says this, The first and most striking difference between Paul's action and ours is that he founded churches while we found missions. It's important. Much of the mission strategy of the last hundred years has been in founding missions bases, and the church is almost an afterthought. There is absolutely no denying that Paul established churches on this first missionary journey. And in ten years, he oversaw the establishment of churches in four Roman provinces. This is just one, Galatia, at this point. Alan and also John Stott both said the same thing about Paul's church planting strategy. He took, preached the gospel, he took baptized believers, and then he did three things. Three things that we see here in this church. Firstly, they taught the church apostolic doctrine. The doctrine of the apostles. That is gospel teaching. He gave them two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They gave them a tradition of the main facts about the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And then commanded them to teach through the Old Testament scriptures with that in mind. Remember, they didn't have the full New Testament Bible at this time. It's still being written. So left them with a certain deposit of faith. The faith, once for all, delivered for the saints. They left the church with that. Secondly, and we see that in verse 23, they appointed elders to care for and to oversee the churches. Put leadership in place to look for and to care for the church and to teach this sound apostolic doctrine and to make sure that error does not creep in. And thirdly, they then would entrust the church to the Holy Spirit, believing that with the Christian faith there in that deposit, with elders, qualified men to care for the churches, and the role and the work of the Holy Spirit, they entrusted these things. To God. And I would argue that this is the main means in which we seek, are to seek to fulfill the Great Commission. A local church based focus on evangelism, edification, and encouragement. We see that right here. 
Paul spilt his blood all over Europe to plant churches in which Jesus' name is worshipped and lifted high. That is his strategy. And secondly, we need to see, verse 22, that through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. This verse convicts me. Imagine if Paul walked in here on a Sunday morning and we say, Paul, have you got a message for us? And he says, yes, through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. That's his message. What do we say to that? What do we say to that? None of, none of us have been stoned with rocks. It just, just doesn't happen. Right? We might say, well, that's good for you, Paul, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Good for you, Paul. But, I mean, we agree. By the way, Paul, why is your face bleeding? So much of present-day Christianity, so much of our strategy is reliant on making non-believers like us. It is about making everything Christianity attractive to non-Christians. That's a problem. I'm not saying don't be winsome. I'm not saying... Don't try to serve good coffee and, 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 and be nice people and help them out. But it's, it's not ultimately about that. We have a very offensive message as we see here. Through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. Many of us Western Christians, and I include myself, we read things like seek first the kingdom of God and we somehow manage to turn that into a message of comfort. The gospel is a message of freedom. It is a message of assurance. I will always say that. It brings assurance. But it was never meant to guarantee a life of ease until our Lord returns. No Christian in Antioch, Pisidia, and Lystra, and Iconium, no person remotely related to Paul would write a book called Your Best Life Now. It just would not happen. It would not happen. This text convicts me in my comfort. We must see here the church's role. We either hold the rope or we go down into the well ourselves. Either way, not by, we're not bystanders. Carson says, It costs nothing to receive Jesus, but it costs everything to follow him. I love the simplicity of that. It costs nothing to receive Jesus. It costs everything to follow him. The mission statement of Christ's sanctuary is to know Jesus Christ and to make him known. We're not a big church. We're not an impressive church. we have a great goal to know Jesus Christ and to make him known what does this look like through evangelism through edification through encouragement through knowing the gospel I believe 
I can't preach to know Jesus Christ and make him known in one message and then just leave it there. It's something that we continually learn. What does it mean to know Jesus? What does it mean to make him known? What does it mean to know him? It is something that gets wider and wider the longer we live. I've only been a Christian for 15 years, but I'm learning more and more all the time to know Jesus Christ and make him known. If we ask the Apostle Paul, and I'm going to close with this, if we ask the Apostle Paul, what does it mean to know Jesus Christ and to make him known? Let's hear what he says. Let's hear what he would say in response. I'll give him the last word. Colossians 1, 24-29 Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God has shown to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this, mis- of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. I believe if we ask the Apostle Paul, what does it mean to know Jesus Christ, to make, it known, make him known, that would be part of his answer. Let's pray.